and I want to say hi to everybody at Pacala and Bishopville and hi to everybody who's watching online. Hey, we've been talking over the last five weeks about how your life moves in the direction of your strongest beliefs, and you know this. Your strongest beliefs influence what you think, what you value, how you make decisions. And so what you believe really does matter. Now, we've been talking in this series about do you believe? And what is essential for you to believe uh, in Jesus? In other words, what must I believe in order to follow Jesus? And we're wrapping up this series today about the five essential beliefs, because the first sermon ever preached about Jesus was preached by his friend Peter, and it was preached on the day of Pentecost, and Peter that day outlined five essential beliefs that you must follow or you must have in order to follow Jesus. So here's the first one, and that is Jesus was sent by God, and this was shown by his miracles. Jesus was sent by God, this was shown by his miracles. The second essential belief is it was God's plan for Jesus to die on the cross so our sins could be forgiven. That's the second essential belief. Third essential belief, Jesus rose again to prove his power to transform lives. And then last week we talked about the fourth essential belief, how Jesus is both God and King. Now today we're going to wind up and find that fifth essential belief, and it's found in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2 beginning in verse 37. Let's share God's word together. When the people heard this, those the people listening to the sermon, They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you and your children and for all who are far off, this is the promise. I'm sorry I left out a phrase. Let me go back and get this right. This is God's word. Uh, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted the, his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Here is the fifth essential belief, what you must believe to follow Jesus. And that is, you must participate. The fifth essential belief, you must participate. What do we mean by that? When my son was about 10 years old, we went on a whitewater rafting trip together. And uh, in my boat, uh, there was this young mom. Uh, She was... um, she was, there's no other word for it, she was skinny. She had with her her eight-year-old daughter and 10-year-old daughter. Together, they weighed about 100 pounds. There's my 10-year-old son. He weighs maybe 100 pounds. And then there is me, who does not weigh 100 pounds. And so our guide, Sparky, Sparky tells us how to deal with the raft on the river. And he says, now listen, When I say dig, you've got to paddle as hard as you can or the boat is going to overturn. And I'm looking at the people in the boat with me and say, it's up to me. (laughs) These people cannot paddle. And and then he says, now when I say rest, you don't have to paddle, the river will carry us. And I say, okay, got that. And then he said, what I will never forget, 
He says, if you fall overboard, you must be an active participant in your own rescue. And I raised my hand. I said, what do you mean, Sparky? And he looked at me, and he looked at everybody else in the boat, and he said, Clay, if you don't pull yourself in the boat, you're not getting back in the boat. (laughs) So what does it mean for us to actively participate? Why is this an essential belief? Let's be clear. You cannot forgive your own sins. You don't have the power. You don't have the ability. You don't have the goodness. You also cannot transform your life, and you know this. Because most of us, let's face it, when it comes to transforming our own lives, we can't even keep our New Year's resolutions. We don't have the power, the ability to transform our own lives. Forgiving your sins and being transformed is the sole work of Jesus. However, God does not want you to be a passive participant in your salvation. It is not enough simply to say, I believe, and God, I'm going to sit here like a lump, and you move me where you want me to go. God does not want you to have a shotgun salvation experience. Because God wants a relationship with you, and a healthy relationship requires participation on the part of both parties. Does anybody want to be married and, and have their partner just sit there like a lump all day and go, ooh. Now, don't look at your spouse right now, right? No, you don't. Well, that's not a healthy marriage. That's not a healthy relationship. And you can't have a healthy relationship with God if you are passive. You must actively participate. Now, the good news is our participation is not beyond our ability. Let me say that again. Our participation is not beyond our ability. So let's dive back into this passage and find out what is required for us to participate. Verse 37, when the people, that is the crowd, heard this, they were cut to the heart. What does it mean to be cut to the heart? Anybody here ever been kicked by a horse? You feel it, right? You remember it. To be kicked by a horse is to suddenly realize you are in the presence of someone bigger and greater than you. Why were they cut to the heart? They realized they had crucified the king they were looking for. We talked about this last week. They crucified the king they were looking for. Suddenly they realize reality. There's an old fashioned word for this, it's the word conviction. It is what happens when we become aware of true reality. Not just that they had messed up, not just that they had made a mistake, they had sinned. They had done wrong. Now, conviction led them to confession. Their confession is unconventional, but it moved them toward action. When the Holy Spirit today speaks to Jesus' followers, it can feel like a horse kicking you. Some of you have experienced this. You realize all of a sudden your life is going in the wrong direction. You need to go in Jesus' direction. Some of you have had that as a salvation experience. You realize your life was messed up, and if you keep running your own life, it's only going to get more messed up. Sometimes the conviction of the Holy Spirit is like 
a sense of something that won't go away. You realize that, that something that you keep trying to be in denial of is not going to go away. You can't think it away. You can't forget it away. You're dealing with that reality. So you confess your sins. What does it mean to confess your sins? This is the purpose of conviction, to guide you to confession. To confess your sins means that you agree with God about the reality of your life. Confession of sins means you agree with God about the reality of your life. Let me show you what confession is not. Confession is not, Lord, I have sinned, please forgive me. Now that's a starting point. It's not a bad starting point, but that's not really confession of sins. Confession of sin is agreeing with God about the reality of the impact sin is having on other people, on you, on your soul, on your future. About 20 years ago, I had a retired pastor who came to see me. And he was on a walker, he comes into my office, and he said, Clay, I, I have sinned. I'm thinking, you're on a walker. What sin can you commit? And he said, he said, I, I've done some bad things and I keep confessing my sin to God and I don't feel forgiven. I said, okay, well, tell me, tell me what you've done. Tell me about your confession. He said, I have been unfaithful to my wife over and over and over. I have cheated with women throughout our marriage for 30 years, thinking, whoa, this went a direction I wasn't anticipating. And he said, I prayed for God to forgive me and I still don't feel forgiven. I said, well, let's talk about how you confess. He said, well, I pray. And I'm thinking, this guy knows this stuff, right? He says, I pray, I say, God, I have sinned, forgive me. Okay, I said, let's dive a little deeper. I said, have you confessed? how your sin has hurt your wife? Have you confessed how your sin has hurt the women you've been involved with in these affairs? Have you confessed how your sin impacted your work, your calling as a pastor? Have you confessed the damage your sin has done to your own soul? It was a long pause. And he leaned on his walker and he looked at me and he said, maybe I've never confessed my sin at all. Confession is agreeing with God about the reality of your sin. Not just a quick, Lord, I'm sorry. So let me ask you, are you in agreement with God about the reality of your life? Are you in agreement with God about the reality of your life? About the impact your sin has on other people? About the impact your choices, your wrongdoing has on your own soul? <coughs> Excuse me. Don't try to breathe and swallow at the same time. These people, give them credit. They are under conviction. They have been hit like a horse kicking them. 
They are confessing their sins and they respond by saying, brothers, what shall we do? Brothers, what shall we do? They recognize that conviction and confession now requires action. Remember, your life is moving in the direction of your strongest beliefs. All of a sudden, their belief in what Peter has been saying is so strong, it is moving them in that direction. I think people still get this wrong. People still have this idea, I believe I'm going to heaven. I believe in Jesus, going to heaven. But is your belief in Jesus strong enough to move you in his direction? Is your belief in Jesus strong enough to move you in his direction? See, one of our core values as a church is we believe everybody has a next step. And if you're not taking next steps, is your belief in Jesus strong enough? Well, is it? So Peter answers their question. Peter replies, repent. Repent. Now you've been around church, you've heard that word. What does that word actually mean? I need you to be an active participant in this sermon illustration. Okay, so if you are able, uh, I want to invite you please to stand. Would you stand? If you're at Pacala, Bishopville, would you stand too? If you're watching online, you stand up. It may be a little awkward. If you're driving your car watching this, don't stand. Okay, so I want everybody to face the left. The other left for some of you, okay. All right, now let's just kind of understand everything that's going on right now. And you're not even thinking about this. You're not aware. I just want to increase your awareness. All of a sudden, you have a view. You can see these posters at Loring Mill. If you're at the other campuses, you're looking at a wall. Some of you now, you're seeing the back of other people's heads that you haven't noticed. Some of you are now recognizing that some people have a balding spot they don't know about. But let me tell you what's going on in your mind. Your mind has made all of a sudden thousands of calculations, and you are balancing. You have a point of reference you actually have an orientation. All right, now if you're in the military, you'll know what this means about face. If you're not in the military, turn and face the right. What changed? Do you see a different view? The answer would be yes. You see in this room a different set of posters. If you're at the campuses or you're at home, you see something that's on the other side of the room that you're in. You're seeing different people. And again, your brain has just done thousands of calculations so that your life has now balanced. Your whole orientation is now balanced in a different direction. That's what it means to repent. Now you can sit down. Thank you for being active participants. Repentance is saying, my life used to be oriented this way. I used to get my values, my beliefs determined by whatever else is out there, but now I have repented. I am pointed toward Jesus. He determines my values. He determines my direction. He is now where I am oriented toward. I'm oriented toward Jesus. That's repentance. What about the person who professes Jesus as Savior, is baptized, and never changes. Are they saved?
It's an uncomfortable question, isn't it? Most of us at this point would go, well, that's up to God. And you're right, it is up to God. But repentance means something has changed. There's a new orientation, there's a new direction. There is more now to Peter's answer. He says, repent, and then he says, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, let's be clear. Do you have to be baptized to be saved, to be a follower of Jesus? And the answer is no. Baptism is a sign, it is a marker of what has occurred to you, an outward sign of an inward event. The thief on the cross was told by Jesus, today you will be with me in paradise based on his simple confession of faith, remember me. He was not baptized. There was no opportunity, no chance. It was not necessary for him to be saved. So why then be baptized? You know, here's an interesting thing. Every time we baptize someone in that baptistry, every time we baptize someone at the lake or at one of the baptistries at the other's campuses, what we notice is when you come up out of the water, you look different. Some of you who have a lot of hair, you look really different. Some of us who don't have as much hair, well, the water does make us look different. That's why baptism is such a powerful symbol that you are buried with Christ and now you're raised to new life. Something has changed. Your orientation has changed. Judy was one of those uh, extroverts on steroids. And she loved life. She lived large. She partied hard. Um, hung out in the bars. Everybody was her friend. Just, you know, people loved her. Her brother Steve was a pastor. He tried to talk to her about Jesus, and she kept saying, no, no, I don't, I don't need Jesus. I, I don't, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm having too good a time. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll talk to you about Jesus when I grow up. When Judy was 44 years old, she was diagnosed with a very aggressive form of cancer. Shortly after that, she found out that her husband had cancer. Simultaneously, she found out that her husband was having an affair, and her husband told her that he did not love her anymore and he was leaving her for the other woman. And at 44, Judy grew up. She began asking those eternal questions. You do that when you face death. Naturally, she talked to her brother. He shared Jesus with her. She accepted Jesus Christ as her savior. And immediately, the orientation of her life changed. She no longer was focused on having a good time. She began to focus on Jesus. Now, here's the interesting thing. She was still the life of the party. She was still an extrovert on steroids. She was still everybody's friend. But what was most important in her life had changed, and it was evident. Now, her cancer was very aggressive. She was hospitalized. She was told, you will never leave the hospital. But Judy had a lot of charm, so she talked her way out of the hospital because she wanted to be baptized. Naturally, her brother Steve was there to help her, 
And so the night came for her to be baptized. She invited everybody she knew. Did I mention she was an extrovert on steroids? There were a lot of people there that night. And just like we do, she came into the baptistry and her brother asked her, what is your Christian confession? And she said, Jesus is Lord. And Steve made a move to start to baptize her. And he said, but she said, before you baptize me, Steve, I want to say a few things. Don't do that. It gives the pastor who's baptizing you a heart attack. Okay. But this night, because it was Judy, Steve said, okay. And Judy began to share what had happened to her. She shared, she confessed to all those people who were there about the reality of her life and how she lived for herself and she had a good time. But then she realized life was more than having a good time and how she had changed. She was oriented toward Jesus and how it changed everything for her. And she invited all those people who had come to see her baptized to make that same decision for Christ. And then her brother Steve baptized her and then gave an invitation. And that night, her 84-year-old father accepted Christ and was baptized. And her ex-husband who left her and her sister, and nieces, and her college roommate who was into new age cultism because they could see the change. 10 days after her baptism, Judy died. Now Judy had written her own funeral message, wanted Steve to read it, and it was about the change that had happened in her life And as Steve shared it, he said, now, if you want that same change in your life that Judy experienced, you can accept Jesus right now. And at her funeral, 100 people accepted Christ. Baptism is a sign of the change. September 18th, we're going to have Lake Baptism. It's going to be a time when we go down to Lake Marion. We do this every year. We baptize outside. We get people in the water. We say, what's your Christian confession? They say, Jesus is Lord. If you have accepted Jesus but have never been baptized, I want to encourage you to sign up for Lake Baptism. You can do that on the Connect card. You can call the office. You can email me. We'll get you signed up. And then I want you to invite everybody you know. I want you to invite everybody you know. Because you want people to know what Jesus has done in your life. So what does it mean to participate? It means you repent. It means you're baptized. Peter goes on and he says this. It means you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you grew up in church, you've probably heard about the Holy Spirit. If you didn't grow up in church, don't have a church background, you hear about the Holy Spirit. That sounds a little weird, especially if your only familiarity with the Holy Spirit is when people talk about the Holy Ghost. It sounds a little creepy and a little weird, Halloween-y. Okay, let me tell you what the Holy Spirit, who the Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit is God a spirit who is able to indwell your life. He is able to inhabit a God-sized place in your soul. This is God present with us. Now, what does the Holy Spirit do? When you accept Christ, the Holy Spirit enters you. And then the Holy Spirit comforts you and confronts you and encourages you and encourages encourages you to take a risk to actually do something out of the norm that is, makes you more like Jesus, the Holy Spirit may tell you, why don't you buy that person's lunch? 
The Holy Spirit may tell you, why don't you make an extraordinary gift? Why don't you walk across the street and invite your neighbor to the Tony Evans crusade? The Holy Spirit may say to you, why don't you step up and serve? The Holy Spirit may say, why don't you calm down? The Holy Spirit may say to you, you don't need to say that right now. It's only going to make things worse. How many of you wish you had listened to the Holy Spirit when he said that to you? I, I didn't have to finish the question. The Holy Spirit is there to remind you you're not doing life alone. When you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you don't have to be afraid of evil because the Holy Spirit is inside of you. He's guiding you, comforting you. To me, this is one of the best reasons to be a follower of Jesus because you don't have to do life alone. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, one of the key questions you have to keep asking Am I listening to the Holy Spirit in my soul? Are you listening to the Holy Spirit in your soul? And not just about church stuff, about life. I mean, to me, this is the greatest part, because like when the truck breaks down, and I don't know, should I buy a new truck or should I get the old one fixed? God, I'm not smart enough to figure this out on my own. Would you show me? And you say, well, Clay, that's just common sense. How good are you doing on common sense? How many of you have ever used the justification of your vehicle breaking down to go buy a vehicle you can't afford? Don't raise your hand. Yeah, that, I, there's an 11-year-old boy who's raising his hand. This worries me back there. <laughs> he must have really good credit. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Just what comes to me? Are you listening to the Holy Spirit in your soul? Now, Peter's not done. He's not done. Uh, we're told in verse 39 that he goes on, he says, the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord your God will call. Now remember, he's talking to this big crowd at the temple. They're all Jews. Only Jews can be at this part of the temple. And so as he's talking to all of these people and they hear, well, this promise is for you and your children. They're going, well, naturally. We're the chosen people. We're the promised people. We're the, we're the people that God loves. We're the Jews. So they think naturally this is for us. But then Peter says something that's shocking. It's for all those who are far off. All those who are distant from God. Now in Peter's day, this would have meant the Gentiles. The Jews did not like Gentiles. Their nickname for Gentiles was dogs. Sometimes they would call them sons of dogs. Do the translation. Peter says God includes them too. Our culture does this. Have you noticed? Especially sometimes our Christian culture. There are, 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 are church people, and then there's not church people. Church people, they dress a certain way, they believe certain things, they watch certain stations. Church people, they talk a certain way, brother. Church people, church people, if they have tattoos, they have to be Christian tattoos. Have you noticed this? And then and then our culture, we tend to say, okay, there's other people. Other people. Now they don't know how to behave, those other people. Not church people, they don't know how to behave. They don't, they don't, they don't vote like we vote. No, 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 no. They don't act like we act. No, 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 no. Oh, and my gosh, some of them have tattoos. That, ta -ta tattoos. Ta um, just one tattoo. Or, but they have tattoos that are not Christian in origin. Oh, my gosh. Have you ever noticed how judgmental Christians can be? 
Have you ever noticed how judgmental you can be? The gospel of Jesus Christ is for you and your children and for all who are far off. That's why this church is a place of grace. We welcome people who know Jesus and people who don't. We welcome people who have something put together and people who have nothing put together. And our testimony is this. If it were not for Jesus, our lives would be in a bigger mess than they are. Okay, now, I don't often fish for amens, but this is group confession. And if you're at one of the campuses, this is for you too. When I say, if it were not for Jesus, our lives would be a bigger mess than they are, that's a moment when God's people need to say amen, so we're going to try it again. If it were not for Jesus, our lives would be in a bigger mess than they are. Good, you agree with God about the reality of your life. And that's why our posture should always be one of humility. Not prideful, not arrogant, not thinking that we're better. We are simply saying there is a Jesus that changed our life because we were pointed this way, and now, thanks to God, we're pointed this way. That's why we're a place of grace. Now, we don't know all of what Peter said in this sermon. What we do know is that it was a long sermon because verse 40 says, with many other words, he warned them. He was preaching till he ran out of breath. And he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Peter witnessed them to them. He told them the truth. And his, the rest of his message was summed up by save yourselves from this crooked generation. What is he talking about? Well, see, Peter could look around at his world at his culture, his time. And what did he see? He saw religious leaders who were intent on holding on to political power. He saw religious leaders who were profiting in the name of God, using God's name to enrich themselves. He saw religious leaders who were devising a system of rules that you had to follow in order to be right with God that no working person could ever hope to follow. He saw political corruption, people who were profiting by using their governmental power to line their own pockets. He saw that the least of these, the sick, the prisoners, the foreigners, those in prison, they were thought of as the scum of the earth. Nobody cared about them. He saw people possessed by evil, and it was controlling their lives. He saw a culture where marriage could be dissolved with the quick signature of a judge. He saw racial tension and ethnic divides. He saw unwanted children abandoned. And Peter says, look at this. Do you want these people to tell you how to live? Do you want these people to tell you what's important? Do you want these people to guide your life? Peter looked at his world and saw brokenness. Look at our world. What do you see? Do you really want some preacher to tell you how to live, or do you want Jesus to tell you how to live? 
Do you really want the government to tell you how to live or Jesus to tell you how to live? Do you really want a celebrity who's just made better looking than the rest of us to tell you how to live or do you want Jesus to tell you how to live? Do you want CNN or Fox News to tell you how to live or Jesus to tell you how to live? Repentance means I was looking this way, but now I'm looking at Jesus. How many people were listening to Peter that day? We don't know. What we do know is this, verse 41, those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. The word accepted means to welcome. Those who said yes to Jesus that day were about 3,000, and they baptized them. There were great pools of water in the temple for washing. They probably used some of those pools. Peter said, you need to be baptized. They started lining up. Disciples were saying, you want to be baptized? You believe in Jesus? You repent? They go, yeah, yeah, okay, let's get baptized. And don't you know, the line got long. There were 3,000 being baptized. Surely James and John must have said, look, the line's too long. Let's go to the pool of Bethesda down the road. Let's baptize you there. Pools all over Jerusalem were getting used to baptize these 3,000 believers. People from time to time will say to me, Clay, I just, I, I just don't like a big church. And I get that, I get that. Some people were comfortable in smaller gatherings of worship. But just yesterday I read an article which said mega churches are of Satan. Now let's understand, we're not a mega church. We're a large church, not a mega church. But God apparently believed that a church ought to be able to reach as many people as possible. So he started the first church with 3,000 people. Apparently for God, that's a small church. When we get to 3,000 in attendance, then let's start talking about maybe we are too big. This is not in my notes, and I'm going to give the staff a heart attack. But this is why you should come at 11. Suddenly, I feel impressed by the Spirit to say this. Something that drives me crazy is when people say, we've just got to take care of our own people before we reach out to anybody else. Folks, that's never appeared in the Bible. That's the idea that Jesus is enough for me and you're on your own. Jesus said, go, make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Go to the other most parts of the earth. I think our church ought to be satisfied that we've reached enough people when there's no more people to reach. This is why you should come at 11. This is why you should come on Monday night. I'll use that line again on Monday night. Okay. I want you to see something else. I want you to see what, G, what Peter did not say that day. I want you to see what Peter did not say that day. There's a lot left out of this sermon. He says there's five things you must believe to follow Jesus. You must believe he was sent by God. That was shown by the miracles. You must believe it was God's plan for him to die on a cross for the forgiveness of sins. You must believe that he rose again to show the power he can change your life. You must believe that he is the Lord and the King. He is God in the flesh. And you must participate. Look at what's missing. There's nothing about the virgin birth. Nothing about the second coming. 
There is nothing about which translation of the Bible is the best to use. You know why there's nothing in there about that? Because Paul hasn't finished writing the Bible. There's nothing in there about what kind of music you ought, to, you ought to use in church. Nothing about how to pick the preacher. Nothing about what kind of building a church ought to build. There's not even anything in there about whether we need a fog machine to worship Jesus. Boy, at everything they left out. I'm not saying those other things are unimportant. Don't get me wrong. We're talking about beginning points. And it begins by believing these five things. People will say to me from time to time, Clay, I want to follow Jesus, but I still have questions. Well, I've got good news for you. If that's you, this is not a test. See, we've been so conditioned by our education system that we think what God wants us to do is pass some kind of test. And if you don't exactly believe everything that somebody says that you ought to believe, and, and, and if you don't have enough biblical knowledge, and if you don't understand how God made the world in, in six days, or, or how Jonah was swallowed by a big fish, and if you still don't know exactly how Jesus did all those miracles, that's okay. You just have to believe he did the miracles that showed he was sent by God. He was crucified, raised from the dead, he is God and King. Now you repent, believe, be baptized, and follow him. I've been, I've been following Jesus publicly since I was eight years old. So that's been about 30 years now. <laughs> Sinned again. Okay. I don't know all the answers to the questions either. I read stuff in the Bible still. I haven't even been to school for this. Still, I read it and I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I can't answer all the questions. But here's what I do know. I know that there is a Savior who died for me. And that same Jesus died for you. He rose again. He was sent from God. Oh, he is God and King. And so we wind up on this big question. Will you participate? Will you participate? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how humbled we are by the fact that Jesus came to this earth for us. And, and now I just want to pray over everyone who's listening to this message at campuses, in this room, online. I want to pray, God, that they would just be asking themselves, if their beliefs in you and in Jesus actually are moving them toward their next step. God, I pray for any who don't know Jesus that today they would repent, make the commitment to be baptized. I don't want to pray, Father, for people who've repented, they've accepted Jesus, but give them the courage to be baptized. God, we've all got a next step. Will you show us what it is? And I ask this in Jesus' name.